Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy 3, if you would. Most of you probably are familiar with the fact that this is the last of 13 epistles that the Apostle Paul wrote. This is a very short time, and if you read the last few verses, you'll see that of chapter 4, that his execution traditionally, because he was a Jew, although he was a Jew, he was a Roman citizen, so he could not be crucified, but they called it a kinder death that they would cut your head off, so it doesn't really make much sense to me, but I guess in one way it is. But that's what traditionally happened to him. Um, But this is his last opportunity to give one more discipleship lesson to his, he calls, his son in the faith, Timothy, at the very beginning of it. And what I find as a pattern, and I don't have time tonight to go over all of it, but I am going to try to do chapter 3, is that Paul is telling Timothy that when he's gone, and he kind of takes the mantle, so to speak, he tells him things that he should not be doing, like being afraid, chapter 1, three or four times in chapter 1, not being ashamed. And what he does is he says, you don't be this way. And then he gives examples of people who are able to conquer those problems, mainly himself. So he'll tell Timothy something of how to live, and then he'll show him how to do it. And he does that in chapter 1, he does it in chapter 2, And in our text, he's going to do it, and even in chapter 4. And it's this back and forth between Timothy, let me tell you what you should be doing, and then Timothy, let me show you what you should be doing. And in the middle of that context of a discipleship text, and this book seems to be, um, we have our chapter, and that's chapter 3. And it's particularly important to me and us as pastors, because that's what this text is written to. Timothy was to be left, and traditionally by history, he remained for the remainder of his life in Ephesus, where he was left there by Paul to pastor the church there. And it would have been easier for him to conform, to go along what was popular in his culture of the that, that day, but he refused to, and that's why he needed admonitions, and I wrote them down, to not be afraid, not be ashamed, hold fast, be strong, endure hardness and flee youthful lust. All of those are things that were going on around him in first century culture in Ephesus. And he was not to be involved in any of them, thus the countercultural concept. That this is what everybody else was doing in Ephesus and this is how they all lived because they were polytheists, they were idolaters, they had a myriad or a pantheon of gods, tons of them. And then you have Timothy who's a monotheist who only had one god who stated that his god was the only god and all the other gods were frauds. Sound familiar? Because that's our day, postmodern day in which we live in. There's all kinds of gods and as long as you have your own god and live your own truth, then you're good. But when Christians come into our culture today and tell everybody, oh, no, 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 there's only one God, not, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not any of those gods are the gods of our culture. No, there's one God, the God of the Bible, namely who present, you know, gave himself for us on the cross and rose again. He's the one true God, and all the other gods are frauds. Now, you, that, that's not popular anymore back then than it is today, but that's the kind of culture in which he lived 
And in chapter 3, that very contrast between everybody else in the culture and the pastor of the church there in that town is made obvious. So let me show it to you. And if you have a pen, you're taking notes, you might want to circle these things because our, limit, our study tonight is limited. And I hope this will be the basis for further study for yourself so that you can say, this is how I live the cultural, countercultural life. Start by circling verse 2. I'll read verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. I'm reading New King James tonight. It says, for men. Circle that. Men. Anthropos in the Greek, plural. Okay? Anthropology we get. This is for men. And then he describes what are the men like in his culture. They are, there's a numerous words. Self-lovers. Self-lovers, money lovers, pleasure lovers, not God lovers. So that's what men are like. But he's not done telling us what men are like. Verse 8, he calls up an Old Testament story of Moses when he stood before Pharaoh and showed whose God was the real God and who was really powerful and what the truth really was. And these two guys' names were Janes and Jambres. And it says, Now Janes and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men, there it is again, circled again, men. What kind of men? Men of corrupt minds. Disapproved. They don't pass the test of having genuine faith. Okay? So what kind of men are they? Well, they're men with disordered loves. First one. Verse 8, they are disordered learning because they have corrupt minds. But also go down to the next one, they have disordered lives. Verse 13, but evil men, there it is the third time, again, men. So you got inordinate disordered love men, you got corrupt minded men, and now you got men who are evil. What makes them evil? Because evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So those are the kind of men that are in the passage. But, see, watch. But he's going to use the exact same Greek word in the, all those were plural. Now this one is singular because here's the idea. See this huge group of people, these men, how corrupt they are and the way they think and the way they love and the way they live. See all this, this is how everybody else is except you singular. So he says, Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, righteousness. Ready? That the man, there's our word, man of God. He's the only one with God attached to it. It's not a subjective, it's an objective. In other words, man of God, meaning this is a man that is from God, a man that's controlled by God, a man whose life is all about God. And can I tell you humbly, as failures, as limited, we, limited, limitations that we have in our lives as pastors, that is what we seek. We want to be the man of God. And if you have read your Bible from cover to cover, that should have a little bit of a scriptural echo in your ear because man of God is the common phrase used at the end of 1 Kings, the beginning of 2 Kings, for Elisha and Elijah. The man of God was the man who stood and represented God in the culture and told people, you're not doing this right because this is what God says and you're not. It was the man who stood out against everybody else. And here's what Paul says about the pastor. 
You're countercultural. Timothy, you're different than everybody else. See, they're all doing these things, but your job is to stand out and say, no, 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 that is not the right way. This is. Why? Because this is what God's word says. Now, interestingly, and don't turn, I'm just going to tell you, you can study for yourself. Chapter 1, in fact, fact, let me say this, 2 Timothy has more personal names of gospel opponents than any other, than perhaps Romans, um, than any of other Paul's epistles. So in chapter 1, he's got um, numerous guys, let me see if I can write their name down. He has Phagellus and Hermogenes. Chapter 2, he has Hymenaeus and Philetus. And then he uses Janes and Jambres in chapter 3 and talks about Demas and Alexander in chapter 4. And what he does is he does this little coupling of two guys, seemingly some of them at least, were people that were in Christianity or had movement toward Christianity but didn't stay in Christianity. And so usually the two people that he mentions in each chapter are always connected to a verb. And those verbs are, they have strayed. They have turned away from me. They, have, they are disapproved. And he, what he's doing is telling them, see, this is what it looks like. These are guys who at one point may have been early on where Timothy was, but they have gone away from the truth. See, they have, in fact, it even says at the last chapter 4, Demas has forsaken me, verse 10, having loved this present world. Demas, read him, he is mentioned by name at numerous times as Paul's partner in the gospel at the end of his epistles. He traveled with Paul, he did service with Paul, he may have even suffered with Paul, but here's a guy at the end who didn't stay with the stuff. He didn't. He didn't want to be countercultural anymore because it would cost him too much. He loved this present world. Disordered love. He had it. And so you have Tim, Paul being instructed by uh, Timothy, I should be instructed by Paul, that, see, all the other men, all the other people in the culture, even in times in the church, they're like this. But see, you're different. And if that wasn't enough to emphasize the point, let me show you structurally even more. And these are my three points, and I don't really going to have time to do much with them. But chapter 3 and verse 10, see, if you're taking notes, take your pen or pencil again, circle it. But you, see chapter 3, verse 10? But you. Remember what chapter 3, 1 through 9 is? Two examples of different kinds of men who aren't staying with the gospel truth. And after that is the example in verse 13 and his example. But weaved in there are these three, get them, three contrasting statements between the other men and what kind of man Timothy is. So he says, verse 10, but you, draw a line down to verse 14. Second time, but you, see it? Now draw it another time, all the way across the page, at least in my Bible, to chapter 4 and verse 5. And it starts with, but you. See it? Here's what he's doing. He's driving this home. Listen, Timothy, everybody may be around you. They won't, they'll, they'll have itching ears. They won't listen to the truth. They'll resist the truth. And he goes through all these things, and they will not stay with the doctrine. But since childhood, and you can read about his childhood in chapter 1, since your grandmother... And your, and your mother, and they had faith, 
You had faith. And he's telling him, see, listen, for your whole life, God has brought you to this point. And everywhere you look, and I've named a bunch of them, they didn't stick with the stuff. They didn't stay with it, but you do. See verse 14? But you must continue. It's the word that means to dwell, to remain. See, don't run, Timothy, when you see the prison. Don't run when you hear about the suffering. Don't run when you see my chains thinking you might be next. You think it's not true? Listen, some of the most devout men that followed with Paul, listen to chapter 4 at the end. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. He's departed for Thessalonica, Cretans for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatian. Only Luke is with me. Now why? Because he's at his second apologetic. When you appear before Nero, who's the Roman emperor, to give testimony to your life and why you are called into question, his first apologetic went okay, but his second apologetic, or he calls it his defense, is not going okay. In fact, he knows it's not going to go okay because he knows it's going to end in his death. He says in verse 6 of chapter 4, he goes from, you know, I'm, I'm already ready to depart. It's like a ship. It's literally a word that means ships getting ready to unloosen from the dock and sail away. And he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown, which is righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. But not to me only, he says. Not just to pastors, but to all of them who also love his appearing. And he says, that's me. See, I'm leaving the scene. But listen, you know what? So is everybody else leaving me. Why would they ditch him? Because if they didn't fit in with everybody else, it could mean their head like his. So he goes through a story and says, Luke is only one, the only one. All these guys that he put his life into and trained, only one, only Luke is with him. And then he says, get Mark, who also ditched him earlier in Acts 13 because it got too hard for him. But now he's turned around, see? The only time, other than in the chapter I've read you, that the word men is used is in 2 Timothy 2.22. I'm sorry, 2.2. And it says, Timothy, here's what you do. You train faithful men who can teach others also. Can I tell you what we feel is our job is? In a countercultural church like we seek to be, in a world where everybody else is making their own disciples of the ways of this world, we seek to have D groups and small groups and youth group. Why? Because it's just not having us be men of God. But our job, according to Paul, is to teach others and make them faithful men. Faithful, meaning it isn't easy to be faithful. Demas found that out. Some of Paul's closest associates found that out. And just because they came to church, believe it or not, and even though they walked around with Paul, i.e. Judas, who walked around with Jesus, does not mean that you will keep the faith, nor does it mean that you will be faithful. And we live in a very difficult world, and I say it all the time. Do not think that you come to church and it makes you spiritual. But you know why you should come to all the service? You should come to this reality, because you need it. <laughs> I need it. You know why? It, what did, right? It's harder... Being countercultural, what? Alone. 
But when you sit in a D group with guys or ladies or in a small group and you share with them and they pray with you and they cry with you and you talk about scriptures and you support one another and you're there at their door and you're helping them along when no one else wants to say anything good about them, that's how we produce people that are followers of Jesus. And so all these little, throughout this text, all these little identity markers and he laces them all the way through, all the little ones. I wrote them down. He calls Timothy his son. Read Acts 16. Do you know his dad was a Greek and his mom was Jewish? And seemingly the insinuation is, is his dad didn't know Jesus. So he never had a father in that sense. But what does Paul call him? You're my son. And he wants him to know, see how God provided that for you? So he calls him his son. He calls him, be a good soldier, chapter 2. Be a good farmer. You're in a race, athletic race. You are a vessel unto honor. You're not a common use vessel in the house that people can throw away and get dirty. He goes, that's not who you are. You are a gold, silver, and precious stones, not wood, hay, and stuff. He's constantly telling him, you are a servant of the Lord. You are a man of God. You are a worker that doesn't need to be ashamed. See, you know what he's doing? Timothy, live in this story. I am convinced more and more that that is what's missing in our Christianity and particularly with our teenagers is they don't know who they are or the story they should be living in. If you read carefully and take the time to look at it, you'll notice in chapter 3, our chapter, that Timothy is to be put into the story of God so that he can see himself as part of the progression of what God has been doing in this world from early on. So remember the two people I told you, chapter one, you got the two guys. Chapter two, you have the two guys that are bad. Chapter four, you have the two guys. But why is it chapter three are two guys that have been dead for millennium? Back to Moses' time. Because here's what we need. We need to know in the present story, see, we faced opposition two, two, two. But you know what? How do we face it? Well, we're going to do the same thing in our day that Moses did in his day. Moses, the one who didn't want to go. The Moses who didn't think he could do anything. The Moses that thought he was a nobody. And he does the exodus and and God uses him to do more in the Old Testament than practically anyone. See, we may see it ourselves. Oh, you know, Pastor Walker, I'm timid. And, you know, I got a personality and I get embarrassed. And I don't know if I know the answers. And what will I say if they come up? And here's what Timothy wants, he's supposed to know. See, when people resist you and you try to stick with the stuff and you tell them the gospel and you don't compromise and become like them, you're different. See, Moses was different. He said things to Pharaoh that nobody else wanted to because they were threatening him. In fact, one time Pharaoh said, if I see your face anymore, it will be the death of you. That's hard, isn't it? You might want to compromise to think that you would get along a little bit better. But here's why he tells the Moses story in the Janet. Why? Because Timothy... See how he had two guys resisting him? Why the twos? Because you have two guys in chapter one, chapter two, chapter... See, just like Moses, Timothy, you are in the same spot. And just like God used Moses, he can use you. See, at your job, no, you have people, you have the own, your own people that you're witnessing to, people that you're telling the gospel of Christ to, and they resist. And see, it can discourage you, and you can give up, and you can say, you know what, I'm just going to forget. I'm going to be like everybody else. It'd be so much easier. I'd get a lot less ridicule and, and pressure and difficulty. And here's what, it, it, here's what Timothy is being told. 
Live in this story. Now, see, Paul's not deceptive because he tells him when you live in this story, look at verse 12. And all those who live godly in Christ Jesus, what? You will suffer. Yes, if you don't compromise and you are not like the world and you stand up for Jesus and you are different in a loving, kind, Christ-like way, you will have to pay the cost. But can I say this? If I had an outline tonight and I was going to preach this as a full board sermon, a countercultural man, that would be verses 10 through 13. Can you look at it? I'm not going to talk about any of it, Harley. Verse, verse but you. He says, Timothy, you have carefully followed my pattern. And he shows him all the things. Look at my life, Timothy. See, I've shown you. It is our desire, although we are flawed, sinful, and imperfect for sure, it is our desire for you to see how to live your life when you look at us. Um, And I bet Paul felt the same weight that we did and probably did way better than we do. But the idea is, see, here's what people need. They need positive, present examples. And they need positive, past examples. See, he says, Timothy, look at Moses and then look at me. This is the story. See, it was written back there. This is the same story it's been telling. You're in it now because you're following me. See, I need past examples and I need present examples. I need models. Pastors seek to, by God's grace, be models of what it means to follow Jesus and have his ideas and patterns going on in our minds and hearts and our lives. And by the way, and so are you. See, our teenagers could see you and how you come to church, and how serious you take it. And when you walk in the door that you're preparing, and it's not just talking about who won the last night's football game, but you're serious about it. And and our teens, see, they're looking. They need models in their home and in God's home to show them how to live their lives differently. But you, see, there can't be a but you in our teens if there is not a but you in your life and mine. So he says, see, I live differently and and you've watched me do all of that. So the countercultural man, verses 14 through 17, the countercultural message. And you know what it is? It's all centered in the scripture. It's inspired. It's authoritative. See, here's what the world does and why people fall into it. Because they start thinking like and dreaming and desiring about worldly ways, worldly thoughts. That's why these guys have corrupt minds. These guys are, have corrupt minds, but watch the contrast. Peter, you have known the Holy Scriptures from childhood, which are able to make you what? Wise. Corrupt. Wise. Self-seeking lovers. Scripture-seeking. See, the whole, pattern, it, the whole passage is a contrast between these people, these men, and this one man who from the very top to bottom of his life and the way that he thinks and the way that he desires and what he loves and how he lives his life is completely countercultural. And I think that that's what God wants as pastors for us and then to develop people in our church to do the very, very same thing. I hope tonight that you could see by this passage the things we discussed in our discussion about count, being countercultural. You're not, obviously, you're not called to be the pastor. But what we are asked to do by God is to follow 
those who mimic Jesus. Paul said, you imitate me as I imitate him. And despite all of our faults and failures and sinfulness, we still want to mirror Jesus' life to you. That's our desires. Would you pray for us? Um, We're coming up on a new year, and I thank God for people who drop off notes and tell pastors, thank you so much for praying for us. I'm not looking for Pat on the back, and neither any of the guys on our staff, but just like you, I'm very thankful when people feel the necessity to do that because it's an encouragement to us because, you know what, like for you and like for us, it is not easy. In our culture, pastors are only known for if they've written books and they have gigantic churches and they're celebrities on TV and people make videos of their teaching. And if you don't have a big church and it's not getting bigger and all the people aren't getting see, then you begin to wonder if you're worth anything or if you take the, you know, I'm going to do this and we're going to have rock concerts and we're going to do this because the whole idea is to fill it up. See, that's not how God wants us to do ministry. That's not the gospel. And we're not going to borrow from the world and follow those compromising ways but we're going to stick to the truth, not because we're better, but because we seek to be humble and little and low before God. And that's the kind of pastors we want and desire to be. Pray for us that we would be like that. And as we are, that we can help you to do the same. Let's pray. Father, what a great chapter in 2 Timothy, uh, just to be antithetical, to be different, to be juxtaposed against our culture. We desire to be different, not just be weird, different, or just different for being different's sake. No, different because you are at the center of our church. You're at the center of our ministry. You're the center of our lives, of our preaching, of our ministries, of all that we do at Faith Baptist Church and at Mosaic Baptist Church and Faith Christian School. Father, help us because there's a lot of opposition And there's a lot of antagonism. And our world is increasingly getting hostile to Christianity and the gospel. But help us not to be afraid. Help us not to be ashamed. Help us to hold on, endure, and set the example and follow the patterns no matter what. And we'll give you the glory for all that you're pleased to do to exalt your great name. For it's through King Jesus I pray. Amen.